You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Heard is a collaboration between the Hungry Dudes, Nick Drinks, and the Detroit Optimist Society. Each week, we interview industry professionals about issues related to food, beverage, and hospitality. Please take a moment to subscribe to Heard through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcasts. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com, like Heard Podcast on Facebook, and follow at Heard Podcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Heard. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm Joe Hakeem, and tonight I'm joined by Nick. Hey, everyone. Jason. Hey. And certified sommelier and the co-founder of WineFolly.com, Madeline Puckett. Madeline, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Hello. So, so you're, uh, you're not with us, but, you know, over the phone, whatever. You're not in the studio. <laughs> but we, we have some uh, – we'll be drinking wine Um and toasting to you while, while we're while we're here. Um, okay, so I, I want to get started um, with you have a new. It's not a new book. You have an update. You've updated your guide, Wine Folly: The Essential Guide, and you've ch- you've switched it over to Wine Folly: The Master Guide, and that's available for pre order now anywhere you can get books. Um, uh, with a release date of September twenty fifth, two thousand eighteen. Can you talk about the book for a second and what kind of updates you've made to the um, previous edition? Yeah, actually, it's um, it's a pretty intensive update. Uh, we I basically took the first book and I went through it page by page, and I redid every single page in the book, and then I added some more about a little over two times the content in the new book, and redesigned everything from the ground up. I wanted something that was really going to work, not just for the absolute beginner who's getting into wine but something that a psalm could use or somebody in service could use and feel comfortable with their level of knowledge uh, as sort of a guidebook to get everyone's level of knowledge up to, hey, this is the world of wine. Go get it. So I, I want to go back to a point you just made saying you went through every page and kind of updated them all. Um, as, as, a, as someone who has done writing in the past, I feel like um, I constantly want to do that with my writing as well. Is that is there some type of like strain of perfectionism that goes through your veins that um, you, you need to go back and, and kind of edit everything over again and do it to it to an either a new level of perfection? You know, I think uh, <laughs> I think it goes back to you know a little bit of shame <laughs> of <laughs> of like shame goes a long way. Yep. like having. The fear, the constant fear of wanting to improve, uh, you know, I always kept my room really dirty. And then my friends would start coming over and I was like, well, I can't have a dirty room. This that's is a not, sign of a genius, actually. It's not good. <laughs> it's actually a sign of a genius. <laughs> so I think that's why it got a major update. And I, you know, I rebuilt the maps. I went through, because wine information changes every couple of years. So uh, everything needed to be checked, too. 
Yeah, so I, I want to kind of get after what your your mission is, um, and I think you kind of went over that. You you, you want you want to be accessible to everybody. So from the person who may have maybe is buying their first bottle of wine all the way up to like you know uh, master sommelier. How, how do you, how do you take on such a, a massive endeavor like that? Um, well, you know, I, I, I like the way master sommeliers do it is, is they use the one word, which is humility. Um, and the wine world is really daunting. And for someone who's really knowledgeable about wine, you know, that there are special cases and, you know, exceptions to every single rule, but with the exceptions to every single rule comes a rule that helps people learn about wine. And so, uh, you know, through my research and starting winefolly.com, which is a blog, it's got massive amounts of free content online. I started testing, well, what are these rules and how, how should they be communicated? And I, before I was a sommelier, I was a graphic designer. Actually, I'm still a graphic designer. Um, and so to me, the big missing piece was uh, a visual way to communicate wine. That was the missing piece for me. As a, as a visual learner. And what I discovered in creating these sort of visual infographics and visually informative ways to learn about wine, that I wasn't the only person out there who was like, just show me. <laughs> just show me what you mean. Stop writing in words. I don't need no word things. <laughs> so um, the visual element in the book um, is massive. Every single page is designed. Um, there's graphics everywhere. And um, it actually was uh, the work of myself and another designer who did this new book, Frederica uh, Fragapane in northern Italy, helped me with a lot of the grunt infographic work um, getting this book together. Now, now, um, and that's really the mission. So you talk about the infographics, but there's also these amazing illustrations. Are those done by you? Like on your Instagram account, for example? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I did go to art school. That was, <laughs> I guess it was worth something after all. So, mm, you know. So I, I have your, your first book. Your first book is incredible. Um, and I think you, you really do a good job of, of simplifying it, but going into depth where necessary. Uh, the other thing that, especially if you've seen like some of the, uh, the Psalm movies, is they're always drawing the maps. And you did this great line of, um, you know, very um, easy to follow maps. Um, even though with all that information, you know, you, you lay it out so easily, I still feel like wine is still so intimidating. Is there, when you have someone that comes to you, that's just like, you know, I want to learn more about wine, but I have no idea where to start. Where do you point them? I mean, obviously to your blog, but like, what's like step one? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, that's a really great, that's a really, that's a really super great question. That's actually the thing that I'm starting to do. I'm starting a YouTube series called Wine 101, and I also have a page on our site called Wine 101, because the first thing that you really need to do when you're getting into wine for the, yeah, you've been drinking it and loving it and enjoying it. Now you're kind of going, well, maybe I should know more about it. You kind of have to step back and you kind of have to be like, okay, how do my mouth and my nose and my eyes work? (laughs) And now that I understand how me personally, because everyone's different. So a huge part of Wine 101 is sort of identifying your own personal core tastes and where they are. 
And th- th- I think as as people progress, there's also a recognition that um, things change. So you you go from taste changes, um, comple- your as you progress, p- complexity becomes at times more sought after. Um, and, and I'd like yeah. to, in some instances, like w- wine's available everywhere, so you can get wine at the at CVS. And then you, you have, you, you know, you have your grocery stores that ha- some grocery stores have incredible like boutique wine selections. And then you have your wine stores and then your, your mega wine stores. It's like different levels. Um, should a beginner start? Like sh- I find in my wine shopping that it's always best to start at a shop where there are very knowledgeable people. Like you, I think you would do yourself a huge disservice if you started at CVS. CVS. Is that something that you agree with? That's a great. That's a good point. You know, it's when I can think of the first time that wine actually touched my senses in a different and unique way, it was because it was from a wine store. It was a curated wine store. And and that was really the first time I was like, oh, <laughs> I like this. This doesn't just taste like something I want to make a tube, a tongue tube with my tongue and swallow as quickly as possible. So, yeah, I think, and, you know, finding that store might be difficult for some people because, you know, a lot of wine retail can be really intimidating. You walk in there and you're like, they're like, well, what are you looking for? And you go, I don't know. (laughs) What do you think I want? It's kind of this sort of weird game, you know, of trying to figure out what you want without really knowing what you want. Yeah. Um, So, you know, one of the things you can do is starting with, sort of some root grape varieties from different places. Like what are some basic red wines I can try that sort of sum up red wine? And then I'll know the gamut of red wines. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, and so do you remember the, the bottle that got you like the kind of um, piqued your interest? Yeah, my aha wine. Um, yeah. yeah, it was a, a bottle of 2005, cheapy uh Cote de Rhone. It was a Cote de Rhone blend and it tasted like olives. And I was drinking it. I lived in Pasadena. I had these really like kind of dowdy yellow velour swivel chairs that were really low and they were in my kitchen. I like got them at the thrift store. And I was in my kitchen at my little apartment and we had just gotten in a wine club from my dad. My dad bought me a wine club subscription for my birthday when I turned twenty one. And I kept it till I graduated college or art school. And I'd moved into this little apartment. And it took me that long. It was like to move one full year of this wine club of tasting wine every month. And then one bottle was like, what is this? <laughs> I get it. I get the flavors. I get that wine can not just be fruity and sweet, but it can also be savory. I want to get more of this wine. I was in, I was compelled to buy more of it, and I tried to buy more of it from the retailer. It was from knlwinemerchants.com, and they ran out of the vintage, the 2005. It like switched over to 2006, and it didn't taste the same, and I was very upset about that. Like I Here I had found the wine, the one wine that I was like, this is my olive wine. This is amazing. And I couldn't, I wasn't able to buy more of it. And so in that whole entire experience, I learned vintage variation. 
I learned about what Cote de Rhone is, which is a blend of wine of grapes from the south of France. I learned about flavors and French wine and and how my nose works and you know ever like all the base root stuff just in one bottle. But it took me about a year of tasting a, a monthly wine club to get me there. And how stressful that is, you know. So for the most part, with spirits that bottle is going to be the same every year with some differences with like barrel picks and things like that. I would say this kind of gets closer to beer where there's some limited edition picks with beer, but then my God with wine, you know, 95% of all the bottles are going to be different year to year. And that's like, so it's almost just like if you don't, it's like start now so you can start drinking stuff. Cause like, you know, next year it's going to change. And it's like, it's just one more thing that you have to like calculate into your like wine education. Was that wine club? You no, know, that's a great. That's go ahead. I have a question about the wine club, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I've... I was just thinking. It's a great point that it's it is it changes the way you consume wine. Actually, it's no longer about being a brand follower as much as it's being you sort of follow regions and discover regions and you discover producers in those regions and then a few producers you'll consistently follow over the years and years but you can basically explore the entire world just following the lens of wine and what vintages do well you know and where you know where you find success in the different places so yeah it's it's a different way of consuming that's definitely true yeah, I like the idea of the wine club. I was just curious. Um, you'd mentioned K and L, and they have a great reputation for spirits, which is what I'm mostly familiar with. But I was thinking about. I'm trying to learn a little bit more about wine as time goes on, and I know that some of the local retailers around town also do Royce wine clubs, yeah. right? And you had mentioned, um, obviously, the importance of finding the right person, you know, place that can guide you. Um, was K and L was that local for you, or was that just a something that happened in the mail? Because I know they have those as well. Um, it was sent to me in the mail. I did live in California though at the time, so it was semi-local. They live there out of, um, they're out of San Francisco Bay, the Bay Area, and I lived in Los Angeles at the time, so it was pretty, it was semi-local, although they did feature wines from all over. Um, I think finding a wine club is, is very challenging, actually. Uh, there's so many wine clubs out there that, are basically just selling you the CVS pharmacy <laughs> wines, <laughs> just relabeled. Um, so uh, the Can Can was kind of a lucky break. They had a really good, affordable uh, wine offering, uh, wine club offering, and and it just so happened that it was pretty solid. You know, for for how affordable it it was, and I think they still have that program. Although I don't haven't used it in many years, and I couldn't verify its greatness at this <laughs> current place, but I think it's pretty solid. Not not to put you on the spot, and you can decline to answer this if you like. But have any of the little mm-hmm. like single serving wine clubs online have any of those piqued your interest? The ones that are like in vials or test tubes or little bottles. Yeah, yeah, there have been a few that have been quite a surprise. Um, I had one sent to me in the mail and. I think it was actually sent from Romania, like or Croatia, like it was from a faraway land. They had they had packaged these wines, um, and they were very unique grape varieties that I never see in the United States. 
And I was just completely sort of like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I can actually try these rare, really super rare grapes. And so that was uh, a kind of a delight for me is that here I could expand my palate as a sommelier and try some grape varieties that are honestly really hard to get your hands on in the U.S. Um, you know, that said, you know, you only get a little taste and that can be like, there's not really enough. You know, I, I know they have wine judges and the people often make wine ratings with just one taste of wine. But I, I think really to experience wine, you kind of have to drink it. <laughs> you kind of have to drink a whole glass and and maybe another glass <laughs> or maybe have it open over a couple of days to learn how that wine evolves while it's open and go, okay, is this a wine I can have in my house open every day? Like I'm always looking for that perfect weeknight wine that's like not too expensive. Um, it stays open, lasts open a couple of days, tastes great and evolves, you know, in a nice way over a couple of days. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's like, it's like finding little gems. It's quite a delight. <laughs> so, so that means you're swallowing your wine. You know? Oh yeah. So, I, which is definitely when you look at, um, you know, again, it's, it's totally different when you're kind of enjoying at home versus when you're in a more industrial tasting setting. Um, whereas if you try to go to some of these events and taste a hundred wines, you're, you're on the floor. You after four. Yeah. You've got to spit. Absolutely. You're never, never really going to get that said, if I'm learning, I will absolutely go to a tasting and taste and spit as many wines as I can in a day. And you'll do weird things like bring your toothbrush with you with some baking soda. Um, you might, uh, have like something to clean all the tannin off of your palate, like a piece of bread. Like I'll be licking a piece of bread <laughs> or something like that. So it's, um, it's not tastings can be kind of guttural and in like a little bit like, ah, you know, you smile at your friend and everyone has gray teeth. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's kind of, a, it's kind of fun to see a bunch of like very well healed songs and, you know, the wine market retailers and, you know, the, the best of the best all standing around spitting around a bucket, <laughs> you know? Um, and there's, and there's wine stains everywhere and people's hands are purple. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty keen on the wine tasting experience in general because it kind of, it kind of, to me, it kind of removes that, that, that layer of, of prestige and snottiness that kind of goes with the territory. Now, are you taking, uh, are you taking notes? Uh, what's, do you have like a master Bible of, um, notes for all this tasting. I remember speaking with the Royce, we were talking to Ping and she was talking about how many wines that she had tasted. And well, she had, Eli, remember Eli said he was, sure. he went to, what is it, Italy and drank a couple thousand. I mean, that was insane. Yeah. So is it like, do you have a system or a process for cataloging your thoughts about all these as you're going through that? Like either uh, at yeah, a tasting yeah. like that or just even at home? Obviously, so when I'm active tasting, um, I will um, I will take um, very systematic notes. Uh, if there's good lighting, I'll take a note of the color of the wine, um, and then I take uh, initial nose th thoughts, like how does it smell before I taste it, and um, sort of my initial initial look of the wine, and then um, and then I taste it. And I make remarks about 
you, you know, these types of notes, they're very, it's almost like shorthand for Psalms. They're not very, there's very few words because you're typing furiously into your phone onto your, whatever app you're using to store your notes. So, um, so I write basically shorthand where I talk about the structure of the wine and the taste. Um, was it, was it balanced? Does it have super high tannin? Were this, what kind of tannins were they? Were they rigid? Were they really prickly and, or were they smooth and velvety? Um, did the, did the alcohol, how hot did the alcohol feel? It was, you know, was it overall balanced? What primary flavors sort of came out in the taste while I was tasting it? And then on the finish, I usually put a smiley face if I like it <laughs> or like a meh face if I'm not that into it or a frowny face if I'm just not that impressed with it. And I I don't really have, I, because I don't rate wines, uh, I don't have, I think I would, if I rated wines, I would have a very obsessive system for this and I'm actually working on developing one. Uh, but at the time, at, you know, right now, you know, my my system is to photo the bottle. I, you know, something like Vivino might actually work for me if they had a little bit more structured note-taking in them. But right now I use Evernote, and I use a tagging system in Evernote, and that's how I uh, track all my tasting notes. So you can actually look up the uh, the court of Master Sommeliers. They actually have a, a worksheet. And I know the first time that I saw that, I was just like, oh, yeah, this is how, like, it's just like in the movie where they're sitting there listing off all the, you know, the clarity and the alcohol and the sweetness and all the, the colors and the straw and the yeah. river rock. So Yeah, if you actually search, um, like, Tasting Grid or The Grid, um, I have a really cool detailed one that you can download for free on my website if anyone's interested in uh, seeing The Grid more clearly. And, and and using that to make more accurate tasting notes. It's extreme it'll change the way you taste and think about wine um, to taste in a structured format. You know, it's a really it's a look, it's a smell, it's a taste, and then it's a conclusion where you sort of wrap the whole thing into a nice little package. The other thing you the other keyword that I want to point out that you just said is you said active tasting. So um, you know, you're not always on when you're going out. So you could be enjoying a nice glass of wine and just you know, maybe guzzling it is an aggressive term, but you're not sitting there and analyzing every single drop of wine you have. No, no, I'm not. And in, in fact, there's some regret with that too, because <laughs> as soon as you're not tasting active tasting anymore, you're just getting drunk, you know, <laughs> and that's not particularly responsible, right? You know, it's not the, although sometimes I'm having a great deal of fun and definitely some antics ensue, but you know, I, I'm also maybe wasting a, a, a cool educational experience, you know, in, in, in tasting something really special, you know, and, and understanding why it is what it is and, and, rem, and thinking carefully about the person that put this together, or the place in the world that it is. Like, cause it, wine really is connected to a piece of ground, a plot of land on the ground. Unlike so many other places, like you can, with quality wines, you can trace them back to a place and a time and that's crazy <laughs> <laughs> and and there there and, and i think what's interesting about that comment is that there's also wines that you can't necessarily trace back to a place in time right oh yeah cvs pharmacy wines for example um this is a great example and i'm so glad you mentioned that um you know it's it's bulk wine it's it's uh made in bulk uh, grapes come in by a large amount and they get processed together and, um, you know, just in, in a way they sort of lose their, 
their origin, you know, in this processing plant, and then they're mixed in with some, you know, and I'm not, I'm not down on commercial yeast at all. I'm, I'm fine with different types of yeast for all situations, but in a commercial situation, you're concerned about how do I take this minimum quality grape product, ferment it properly so it doesn't get stuck in the fermentation, and then filter the shit out of it so it actually, you know, goes out to the public clean and filtered and then make sure that it's clean and pure in that, in those senses and doesn't taste like crap. Um, and I'm, and I'm going to use every winemaking toolkit tool on my kit to make sure that it, it passes all the, the thing, the, the tests. And so, you know, there's things like one thing I did really recently in an episodic was residual sugar in wine. Residual sugar is like if you don't ferment the wine all the way, you get a little bit leftover grape sugar. Uh, that sugar actually helps add body to wine. And in low levels, we can't really taste it as sweetness. We taste it more like body. And so we can have these bulk wines out there where they'll have like 2% sweetness. Or I've even had one like, I think it's called jam jar. It's <laughs> jam jar red wine. And it'll have like 52 grams per liter. That's like 5, 5% sweetness. And that is a sweet <laughs> red yeah. wine, you know, um, but it's uh, it's just a tool for helping make these affordable tasting, these affordable wines taste good. And so, you know, you can guffaw, but I, on the other hand, I've had some really great cheap wines. Like there's this bottle of like 7 or $8 Riesling by Shadow St. Michelle. It's called, their, it's like their dry Riesling. It's a real basic bottle. And that thing kills it. Every single year, man, it's such a great cheap bottle of wine. Like, I'm, I'm, all, I'm, I'm, I haven't tasted it this year, so I'm not sure. But <laughs> usually, every year, it seems to knock it out of the park for seven, eight bucks. And so, even though it's a bulk wine, you know, they're they really are caring and, and being very focused on producing a high quality product. So, it, you know, it's I care probably more about the bulk brands getting behind bulk brands that are actually doing a solid product than I do, you know, all like getting behind other sort of liquor brands and things like that. Like that's maybe the same analogy you could make as a liquor brand, a really good liquor product, a distilled whiskey or something that's really fabulous and delicious and buy a particular brand that's solid. I would compare sort of along the lines of a large wine brand, you know, something like Shadow St. Michelle, which is, is quite large. Um, but they're producing, they're caring enough about their product to make something that is indicative of the region it's from. And, and so, like, you have these bulk wines, and then, like, on the opposite end of the spectrum, would you put something like natural wine there? Well, natural wine is an interesting thing, and a lot of sommeliers are very upset about it. Because, um, you know, some winemaking techniques have sort of like, they're not being used, you know, no sulfites are made with natural processes and things can go very wrong in the fermentation that you kind of want to, you know, step in and <laughs> help guide your yeast to fully ferment the wine or whatever it is. Um, so natural winemaking is a sort of a terrifying, you know, <laughs> genre for some, <laughs> some psalms and some winemakers are very against it because it's like, Okay, I'm taking my hands off the wheel, and I'm going to let God do <laughs> do the bidding for this bottle. And it's a, and it is terrifying because you're spending thousands of dollars on grapes. Um, 
that said, there are some keen benefits to natural wine. Most of these guys who are doing it, and there's no real definition of natural wine, by the way, so it's kind of, this whole thing is kind of a little bit wishy-washy, but for the most part, natural wines made in vineyards that don't get pesticides and, and that sort of a thing. So if you're sort of, hey, I don't want to support Monsanto and all these other things that I really don't believe in, I can drink natural wine and be feel pretty safe that I'm not doing that. And it might taste weird. It's not going to taste like a normal wine, but I at least know that my dollars are going to support something that is flying in the face of this sort of traditional commercial wine model. And I kind of like it because of that. I, like, I, I'm not so keen on the sort of smell of gerbil cage that I get in some of these wines. <laughs> but on the other hand, like, I'm very keen on the sort of ideology that like, yeah, punks, unite, fly in the face, go against the man, you know, and that's right. really cool about it. Yeah, and um, recently, uh, their uh, Action Bronson took a huge uh, got way behind natural wine. Um, Four top issue. just did a post. We had Catherine Cole on a little while ago, and Four she just did a an, uh, show on it. Yeah, yeah. So Action Bronson, I think on Fuck That's Delicious did did a whole episode on natural wine, which you know fr- from from uh, the winemaker's perspective to get someone behind them, you know, li- like you or like Action Bronson or something like that, that's a huge kind of boon to to that in the natural wine industry, right? Well, you know, it's, it's a, it's, you know, it's hard for me to recommend it to somebody who's just getting into wine because unless, unless they're fully aware that, Hey, you might be smelling a rat cage when you get home in your glass. Are you okay with that? It's going to be weird. Like it's going to be tart. It's going to be weird. It's not going to be like any wine you've tasted before. It might smell, you know, like strange dirt, (laughs) you know? So and of course, there's some natural wines that knock it out of the park, and they're very fruity and delicious. But it's just like with all other wine out there in the world, you can't get a like a solid, clear taste profile if you go buy a natural wine. It's going to be across the board. So, what are your feelings on um, there? There are there's this wine, like the, the pet nat kind of movement that's happening, and I don't know if it's a movement so much as like. Uh, Somaliers, kind of, or people in the know. <laughs> so, well, how many of us want a T-shirt that says Petnat on it? Like, it sounds <laughs> awesome. But for, I, I mean, want a T-shirt that says Petnat. <laughs> and, and does does that like? I don't know enough about it. I've tried it. I, I like it. Um, I, I particularly like. There's a a dry hopped Petnat from uh, Field Recordings out of California that I adore. Didn't we have one on the podcast too? I, th- I think it might have been that one. Yeah, when Liz. What? did Liz bring one? I think I don't know. All right, and can for, can you just refresh because for myself and others, what exactly is Petnet? Well, let's let the specialist talk about yeah. it. <laughs> okay, so it's it's pet, it's called uh, Petulant Naturel. It's a um, you know it's it's based on the ancient method of making sparkling wine, which is called in the French the French call this method ancestral, and um, it may have originated in more of the southern part of France in the Languedoc region. Uh, where basically what would happen is you'd get your wines made, you'd throw them in the bottle, you'd put them in the cellar, and then in, they wouldn't have been fully fermented-ish. And then in the springtime, they'd continue to ferment. You know, it starts to warm up in the cellar, and they would start to they would re-ferment in the bottle, 
and and the uh, carbon dioxide could go anywhere, so it would just carbonate the wines. And they're not as sparkling as say sparkling like champagne. There may be like three, two, two, uh, two to three atmospheres per bottle, or something like that. One point five to three, or something like that, and which is about as much as a pretty bubbly beer. And 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 they're fun. They're lots of like it's a it's an old school winemaking method that seems pretty like oh hey you just make the wine and if it's not all the way fermented you bottle it and then it finishes fermenting in the bottle and it's you know all the weird yeast stuff is still in the bottle it doesn't get all cleaned out and clarified it's all just sort of all there <laughs> and and so they're a lot of fun to open and bust into you get this cloudiness in the bottle and. And they're sort of an adventure. And uh, the Loire Valley in France is where you'll find actually a lot of pet, great pet nats made with Chenin Blanc grapes. And I think there's some, you know, Cabernet Franc pet nat, like rosé style wines that are really good. And uh, it's just a great thing to try if you've never had it. Uh, lots of fun. And there's actually a variant of that uh, sort of Calfondo Prosecco is a, like sort of a variant from that from Italy. That's a lot of fun to try too. That's just very different, you know, natural fermentation, and that's the deal with pet nat. What are some um, common misconceptions that you find yourself answering a lot about wine? Um, the number one is wine tannins give me a headache, and sulfites are going to kill me. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and so those are those are you can dispel that or what, like what what do you? <laughs> What, how do you respond well, to tannins, someone? Tannins haven't really... I've, I've looked at a lot of research papers and studies on tannins, and tannins turn out to be one of the only things in wines that are good for you, the polyphenols, tannins. Uh, uh, we know this if you drink a can of green oolong tea, and it says 120 milligrams of catechins or epicatechins. Those are actually tannins in the tea, the same tannins that are in wine. And they're, they're selling them as a health benefit on these little, little bottles of oolong. And they're also in wine, so it's kind of like, well, it's the same. See, it's the tannins are not bad for you. It's literally good for you. Um, they've actually been proven to, um, in studies with real humans, human trials, uh, they showed that uh, epicatechin and catechin uh, sort of reduced cholesterol in human beings and, you know, helped your... Uh, this crazy heart person told me that you you got to have really loose and sort of you know free moving veins. That's what you want. <laughs> Your veins and arteries should be loose and free moving. Moving. If you have too much cholesterol, it kind of constricts them and makes them you know kind of you know chinky. <laughs> wow, that's how she described it to me. At least I was uh -huh. like, wow, I've never really thought of my veins that way. Anyway, anyway <laughs> so this cholesterol stuff helps you know you want to get it removed and so certain types of ldl cholesterol through your body help remove this plaque and build up and stuff and that's what tannins do so tannins are actually really awesome um and then the sulfites question is one of those it's one of those moderation questions um yes there is a small fraction of the population that uh where sulfites are very bad and they will be affected by things like any type of cheese cured meats, french fries, any sort of pre-prepared foods of any kind, uh, people who are sensitive to sulfites will have this issue. And th these people are most likely already have asthma. They probably already have some sort of condition. And then 
this added layer of alcohol plus the sulfites in the alcohol is also very bothering to their systems. So it's a very small percentage of the population, but in the 1970s, I think they, it, it became, so we sort of went on a binge freaking out about things during that time, which was good. Like it helped with nutrition fact labeling and all that sort of thing. But um, we also uh, went after wine. And so the one thing that label on wine is whether or not it has sulfites in it, which helps a small percentage of the population. But because we don't have any information about wine besides that, we sort of go, well, what is that? What, I'm, I'm, that must be dying if it has sulfites in it. That, that's that's got to be bad. So uh, there are no sulfite wines available. Um, natural wines, certainly a lot of natural wines do not use sulfur in the production of wine. Whether or not they have sulfur on, sulfur SO3 in them is questionable. You know, you've got to get tested and it has to have less than 10 parts per million of sulfites, which is SO3 in it. So it, it's one of those things where, you know, we've been drinking wine and preserving it with uh, sulfites for probably well, well over 2,000 years. And, you know, some of the longest lived people, you know, in the south part of France drink nothing but Tanat all day. And they, and they lived 124 years. So it's like going, well, I don't know. What, what? I don't have enough evidence to say it's bad or good. But I, I'm, I'm questioning the outright fear of it. What's Tanat? You, you said Tanat? Oh, Tanat. It's a grape variety. It's oh, okay. a, sorry, it's a red grape. Okay, I think I've... It's a, del- it's a very high tannin. <laughs> okay. Red wine variety. It, Come on, Joe. There's only like hundreds of well, wine varieties well, no, to learn. I, so there, there's a bottle that comes to mind. It's called Taurus, T-O-R-U-S. And I think that is a variety... I think it's a Tanat, if I'm not mistaken. I think I've had that before. It, it, it kind Was of... Was it from Uruguay or from France or... France, I think. Or is it California? No, it was a, it was a French wine. Yeah, oh, for... Oh wow! I, I don't know. I don't know. You're, oh. you're a classy Maybe. guy. Maybe <laughs> to do I, or to not. That's what I would say. <laughs> good one. There you go. <laughs> so, that's my best Nick of this game impersonation. Okay. Didn't go over that well. I, I tend to what, what, the way I shop, and I know it's vastly different than most people. It's uh, I'll go to a wine shop and say. What's something that is incredibly unique and and like maybe something I've never heard of before, um, and I'm willing Ooh, to I like that, and I'm willing to you know like spend money and try something new, and very rarely am I um in a position where I don't like something. Um, when you say spend money, what does that mean? I don't know. Fifty bucks for a bottle. All right, yeah. So you're putting you're putting a decent yeah, that's but, a lot. Yeah, but that's not that's not normal. I'm not like. You know, I I had one last week. It was uh, I don't know how to say it, but I'll try to spell it. G i g o n d a s. Oh, giganda. Yes, a giganda. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, from that's from the coat that you got hit by the coat de Rhone. That's in the coat de Rhone. That oh, was my Aha wine area. Oh yeah, it was it was absolutely tremendous. I don't remember which uh, what the label what it, the name was. I have it saved in my phone somewhere, but um. It was so wonderful, like just just a beautiful bottle of wine. I think it was in the forty ish dollar range. Um, and, you nice. know, and if I had if I had the means, I would drink something like that every day. But that's weird because I was just I was having this question uh, conversation with my girlfriend the other day because I'm trying to coming from the spirit side, my perception of price and value must be a little bit skewed because when you say forty dollars 
and everybody's gasping me like, oh, that's really good. But we don't, I mean, and you've been getting a bourbon too. $40 is not a lot in terms of buying a bottle of bourbon, for example. But I don't blink an, blink an eye. And so when, when somebody's telling also, me about wine, yeah. I'd be like, oh, uh, for example, as I would try to get a little bit more into wine, I'm like, oh, we're going to go, I'll buy some wine. And I was, I was expecting, I would have expected to spend a little bit more than that to reach that level. So I'm trying to recalibrate my. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, it has a lot to do with, uh, if you remember like uh, your um, dare classes back in grade school where they would show you what a serving size of alcohol is. <laughs> so like a bottle of bourbon, you know, is like a, a, a serving of bourbons an ounce. Right. So and you for have, the most part, doesn't necessarily go bad either. Whereas wine, right. mm-hmm. you really want to kill that in a couple days. Eh, you can hold on to a bottle of Giganda for a few years and you'll probably be okay. If it's open. I mean, maybe not. Oh, if it's open. Oh, so that's yeah. kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah, so like kill it. if I invest, you know, 100 bucks in a bottle of whiskey, I can hang on to that for years and, again, for the most part, not notice a difference in the, you know, in the taste. But if I did that with an open bottle of wine... I'd be pouring it on my salad with olive oil. Yeah, I, I mean, I had a forty-year-old bottle yeah. of Jim Beam uh, a couple months ago that that was, had just a little bit left in the uh, bottle and it tasted fine. That would not, yeah, like you said, it'd be vinegar. <laughs> so, and that's the tough point. Like again, I I don't have a problem spending a pricey bottle of wine, but it's it's still that that panic that if I don't like it, it's that's it. You know, you've opened the bottle, you really need to finish it. Whereas the whiskey, at least I can still enjoy it for a little bit longer. Again, I'm totally being devil's advocate right now. I'm not saying don't spend that bottle, that money. But it's still a little more of this, you know, this scare to spend that money. It, it is. And I think, I think that you can get most people, and, and now most people tell me if they're getting into wine, they like red wine. Um, and I, I don't know if this is the same for you. Uh, but uh, most people, you can get away with spending anywhere from like 22 to 28 bucks and get a very nice bottle of wine. Probably mostly not U.S. Uh, There's just a few places in the U.S. you can still find great values. Um, We just, it's just too expensive. It's too expensive to make and ship out wine here. Still, we have some problems to work through, Um, but you can get some great Italian wines for that price. Like great, absolutely fabulous, great uh, Spanish wines for that price amazing French wines for that price or anywhere else in the world where you're just, you know, an amazing uh, reserve uh, Malbec, you know, 26, 28 bucks. That's going to blow your mind. So, and mm. you know, I think there's a lot of fear with, okay, well, how do I know it's going to be good? Mm -hmm. And this goes back to that question of, well, you've got to allow yourself to explore for that first period to discover what you like. And that's the risky part. So we talked about this a little bit before we started recording and I kind of want to spin it a little bit. Uh, in Detroit, we had two big sommeliers leave, uh, leave the state. One actually we interviewed, uh, I believe earlier. And what I, you know, Detroit isn't a huge, huge market yet. And we don't have a ton of fine, fine dining. We have a, we have a handful of them. Do you see a role for the sommelier in kind of the middle level of restaurants? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the sommelier is going to be actually more like a Swiss army knife. Someone who not only has a deep passion for wine and access and knowledge of great wine, but can also run as a manager of the restaurant, can also help 
run do cost analysis because they are doing that already for wine. They can help, you know, on that level and that front. This person is is tuned to basically solve problems and to be there and to be available. And that to me sounds like a sort of major D or a manager in that kind of position. And I think we're going to see a lot more restaurateurs seeing the value of hiring a manager with wine expertise mm. um, who can also help run their restaurant. Cause it's just, it's just, why wouldn't you like it? It would seem stupid. Not well, I can get this guy in. He can choose the wine list or she can choose the wine list and make an awesome wine list for, for our restaurant and help me with my front of house staff. It just, that's just like a no brainer. So yeah, it's kind of or a little a bit bartender. of bartender. Right. Absolutely. A with, little bit of a multitasking. Yeah. So, cause wouldn't the alternative yeah. would be like a beverage director that would be taking that on. Right. And I feel like a lot of the beverage directors tend to focus on spirits. And, it may, and that may be just good in Detroit. They did. You know, it's interesting. I, I sort of lived through a period where we were, kind of coming off of our wine craze and going into a spirits craze, um, which I sort of saw really happening around 2008, actually right when the market crashed, <laughs> we, we started drinking a lot more spirits People and drinking that a lot good more shit. cocktails <laughs> and we needed stronger beverage yeah. at that time. I actually really got into cocktails during that time too and beer. Um, and, and, and now cocktails and beer have really taken off and I think it's wonderful. I think it's fantastic. Uh, this helps people learn taste and flavors, bitterness, sweetness, extremes. And to someone who's been trained on a cocktail palate, wine is a lot more subtle. Mm -hmm. It's a lot, a lot more subtle in so many ways. So the great beginner wines out there tend to be bombastic in their taste profile. Although they're a white wine with sky high acidity and really strange bitterness or whether they're a big, bold red wine that just has, is, is like punch you in the face with its tannin and fruity characteristics. And um, so I, so I still see a lot of people who are just getting into wine choosing, Hey, I want a crowd pleaser. I want that bold wine. I want the, the big flavors. Cause it's, it's fun. It's easy to pick out the flavors. You can sort of develop your taste for wine. And then eventually we said this earlier, you, you, you want more, <laughs> you want more or less. <laughs> you, uh, a sommelier friend of mine, Morgan Harris has always said, you're either an all of the flavor person or a none of the flavor person. <laughs> and you have these people out there and your palate changes and you'll be, it'll be rare to find me drinking a bold red wine after a long day at work. I'm usually drinking something lean and cold and, and just like aromatic. So like, as soon as I smell it, I'm like, ah. <laughs> so like, that's, that's how I drink these days. But if you asked me a few years ago, I'd be digging the Cote de Rhone, like a, a bold Grenache punch you in the face, big ass Southern French wine with a little bit of dirt. <laughs> So I, I would say I would categorize you as one of the 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 big wine writers uh, of the the U.S. Um, one thing I recently got called out in my beverage writing was not covering wine enough. Um, what yeah, and, and I tend to focus too much on spirit and a little on uh, spirits and beer. What would you say um, that I can do and that other writers in Detroit can do to cover wine more? Um, you know what? Just pick. Pick a region and help help a, 
someone in Detroit understand it from a Detroitian perspective. Hmm. And and that's the skill that you have. Because there wine the the problem the wine industry has is we keep using wine to comp- to describe wine to others. We're going like, "Oh, well that's this wine reminds me of Bordeaux or this wine <laughs> reminds me of Cotteron." And these words are mysterious if you don't know wine. Unless you're in wine, you're like, oh, yeah, Cotteron, da, da, da. So, so we need more writers to speak to us on a con- contextualized things with foods and experiences and, and tastes that are familiar to us in a non-wine realm. So as a Detroit, I'm going to call you a Detroitian again. I apologize. <laughs> I don't know how. Would you, what is it, De- Detroit taunt? Detroiter. <laughs> Detroiter. Detroiter. Yep. I like that. Yep. I like that. Detroitian Detroiter. <laughs> um, so as a Detroiter, you have an entire subculture um, and a, an experience, your daily reality that you wake up to, your winters that you live through. What is the wine for the, the your life and your culture? You know, and it's going to be different. And it's, it might be... It might be like a weird fermented cider-like wine. It, it, it's going to fit. And, and that's what the U.S. is trying to do right now, which is so cool. And why you're so important is that we have a totally different perspective of wine. We're Americans. We consume things differently. We value things differently. <clears throat> and we haven't really had a chance to develop our own wine culture. Yes, they have a wine culture in California, it's very well set there. But there's people growing grapes over there, too. There's Petite Pearl. There's um, Norton. Um, there's uh, Marquette. There's weird grapes there that nobody knows about, and except for me, because I'm curious. And <laughs> not even other Psalms will talk about these grapes. But there's like a culture that could happen with our own unique uh, varieties that we can actually grow in the Midwest. And... and the first person to start making those wines seriously and the first writer to write about them seriously, that's going to change the American wine world, in my opinion. That seems to be, though, like, I mean, from my perspective, coming more from spirits and not having a large awareness of wine like that, that that almost plays into, like, what you're saying, though. There's There's these things going on that nobody knows about except for the select few. Like, that, to me, sometimes... I see the perception of wine. Wine does have its own culture relative to other spirits, and it sometimes it seems impenetrable because people want it to be that way because it's oh, because true. of its exclusivity, and that lends itself to um, a certain caliber of clientele, let's say, or you know that maybe not be as inclusive as uh, not not because it's not being written about, but potentially by design in some sense. I don't know uh, if you can speak to that. I could just agree with you. Well, thank you. You already said it. <laughs> I think totally. Yeah. I, th- I think one of the the major things that you're doing to kind of getting also to Jason's point to like kind of demystify all these things and kind of be more inclusive are, are these illustrations. Can you talk about the they're illustrations so, that so you um, so your Instagram account at Wine Folly? Um, you, you they're they're peppered throughout the account. There's photos, there's great photos, there's and there's these illustrations. And these illustrations like the one I'm, the fir- the first one the first one you'll jump that jumps out at me is a spot 
Burgunder? Is that how you say that? Fab Burgunder. Yes. Yeah, that's actually the German name for Pinot. Pinot Noir. Yes. Yeah, so so you, you, you have a picture of the bottle, and then you have three flavor profiles and three things it pairs with. That That is like infinitely more helpful than anything that someone can write. You know, like if I was to write tasting notes and had pass them off to someone, like I would much rather pass them off this incredible illustration. Can you talk about the kind of like inspiration for these illustrations, where that came from? And then like, do you have like thousands of thousands more in the, in the hopper ready to go? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm working on a bunch. Uh, in the vineyard, yeah, you know, uh, yes. Uh, the, you know, the ins- the inspiration is is <laughs> almost out of a desperate need. You know, I was keeping up our blog, doing three or three articles a week, and a constant need to create new images. And I've created thousands upon thousands of them. And when I couldn't design on the computer using digital design, like when I was too tired to do that, I just was like, fine, I'm gonna get a pen and I'm gonna start doodling and figure out how to doodle because I could, I could uh, figure out how to do that process more quickly. This is funny. This is literally coming out of a desperation need to put content out there as quickly as possible. It's how I started illustrating. I was like, well, it could take too long to properly illustrate a picture of a bottle on digital, but I could draw it in like maybe five seconds, (laughs) you know? Yep. So I, so I started doing these these doodles, and they kind of caught on. Like people liked them, and they had this sort of like wine, a little bit of folly in them. You know, they're they're hand illustrated, they're a little bit wonky, and they have personality to them. And they kind of help describe the the feeling that I I am hoping people get this like excitement of like, hey, we're just trying this out. With this is this is fun. This is wine. This is. This is us having a glass, sharing a glass. And and I, I think that it, it really did work to communicate wine in this way. And and I'm very I'm very happy that it, it's it's helping people learn and on all of our channels and on our blog on winefolly.com and I've got some really cool things coming that I'm working on in the back end that are taking up all my time um, that are gonna come out really soon. Um, that will hopefully be much, much even more helpful and more open. I think the biggest, and sorry to keep drawing more and more tangents in, but the biggest problem, the biggest issue getting into wine is this barrier, this knowledge barrier that is like a wall of petrifying information that just seems really, really hard to sort through. But if you know how to taste and you taste wine, if you make it a consistent practice, you know, and you get your bottle, two bottles a month, even if it's that little, you're going to learn something if you're tasting actively and you're going to develop a palate and it's going to be your own unique thing. And you're going to develop your own sense of taste that is going to go wherever you want it to go. And that's the coolest thing. And, you know, we've all been influenced by our peers around us. And it's helpful to have a few drinking buddies to, you know, compare notes with. So it's really a fun adventure that you can share with friends. So, uh, can you talk talk about one a little more time about the book? So the um, the book comes out September twenty eighth. Yeah, September twenty fifth. Twenty fifth. Um, sorry, you can pre order it now uh, on Amazon or our website or Barnes and Noble or your local bookstore. You you guys have a good bookstore there in D- Detroit. Uh, John King Books. Oh yeah. 
Yep. Pages. John Pages. King. There you go. Yep. Go get it at John King. You can pre-order it there. And it's it's like, okay, you flip open to a page. I'm going to do it right now. And it says, that's funny. I flipped over to Roan DSM. I'm going to flip to something else that we haven't talked about already. Okay, it says Sagrantino. And it says what the wine is, how to pronounce it in like onomatopoeia, Sagrantino. And then it tells you a little bit about this wine in terms of how much it's a bold-bodied wine, alcohol's medium, tannin is bold. And it talks about how it has really high tannins. It t- tells you its primary taste profile, tells you what glass to use, how long to decant it, how much you should expect to spend, and then other wines like it. So, And then there's a few details about it's from central Italy. It's it's a very special rare grape with some of the highest levels of polyphenols. It's the tannin thing we talked about of any red wine. It's kind of like to not in that way, actually. And if plum sauce, licorice, black tea, black olive, and black pepper sound good to you, you should probably go pick up a bottle of Sagrantino and you should expect to spend about 32 bucks for a bottle. And it's from uh, Montefalco, uh, Umbria in Italy, and it's delicious. And it tells you all of this on one page. And then if you like it, there's a bunch of wines on the bottom that say, here's one, Torriganest, you know. It says you should try, if you like that one, you might tr- try Torriganest, you know. That's another rare, interesting wine from Portugal that's just it's a bombastic, delicious wine that almost has subtle notes of violets. It's just, ooh, it's delicious. <laughs> um, so, yes, you can flip through the pages or you can taste along with each of these pages. And then when you want to know more, you go to the back and you dig around and let's see, Portugal. We're going to go to, no, no, we were in Italy. We'll stick with Italy. So we want to go to Northwest Italy, Northeast Italy, Central Italy. Here we go. There's Montefalco on the map. And then it says Sagrantino, and then it talks about the major wines of Central Italy, and you learn, oh my God, that's like just down the road from where they make Chianti. All right, we f- we feel like you're giving a- we feel like you're giving away way too much free content here. We're gonna have to let people uh, check out the book themselves. And, and there is free content on your website. That's <laughs> winefolly dot com, correct? <laughs> yeah. And there, uh, and then you're also at uh, at Wine Folly on Instagram. And then you're also at Wine Folly on you're at Wine Folly everywhere on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, yep. All right, Madeline, thanks for being with us once again. You can pick up the book, uh, pre-order it now on Amazon. September 25th comes out. Wine Folly: The Master Guide. Madeline Puckett, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, guys. <laughs> thank you. Until, Cheers. Until next time, dine well, friends.